Okay. Well, here's the deal. People all around us, uh, neighbors, people who live next door to you, live across the street, uh, coworkers, people that you talk to every day, uh, family members who you know and love, people all around us, many of them are going to die one day and spend an eternity in hell. And that ought to bother us more than it does. Don't you think? And I don't say that to make any of us feel guilty. It's just a reality that we need to be honest about. And I get it that most of us don't have the gift of evangelism. In fact, statistics show that probably... Only about one out of every ten Christians actually has the gift of evangelism. Uh, and, and I think sometimes that's part of the problem because, you know, sermons about witnessing or about evangelism or any of that stuff are usually preached by those people who have that gift and they tell all these stories and stuff and then we just go home feeling like slime, you know, and... And then we start, you know, getting, okay, I'm going to be more bold in my witness like the guy with the gift, and then it just scares the snot out of us, right? I mean, anybody know what I'm talking about? So the question I want to, I want to talk about today, the question I want to ask is this. Oh, okay, so, so what's the responsibility of the, of the other 90% of us? Those of us who don't have the gift of evangelism, what's our responsibility when it comes to this reality of people all around us. And, and I don't think it's necessarily that we suddenly become witnessing machines or anything like that. But I do think it starts by letting the reality of people's eternity start to bother us. I mean, why is it that this doesn't keep me up at night sometimes? I mean, why is it that I'm not moved to tears for the lost condition of these people very often? Why is that? Why is it that, I, that it doesn't drive me to pray or to speak up or to do something, anything, in hopes of maybe influencing these people toward a relationship with Christ? Why not? Uh, in, a, in a George Barnes survey, they s revealed that 83% of Christians never share their faith in any way, shape, or form. 83% of us. I mean, certainly we can do better than that, right? Right? And at the very least, we need to care about the reality of these spiritually lost people in our lives. And so here, just for a moment, just, just let that reality settle over you for a little bit. I mean, let it make you a little bit uncomfortable. And, and maybe just take a few seconds and, and picture in your mind the faces of people in your life who aren't in Christ. And I'm not saying they're bad people because they aren't. 
Many of them are better people than you, right? Certainly better people than I am. But the clear teaching of the Bible is that none of us make it to heaven on the basis of our goodness. That it's only by being saved by the shed blood of Jesus in my place. It's not what I do. It's got nothing to do with what I do. I I can't do enough. Any of us. None of us can do enough. None of us make it to heaven on the basis of our goodness. That apart from the ransom of Jesus on our behalf, we will get exactly what we deserve. And that is hell for all of eternity. You see, God's wrath rests on all of us because God is holy and we're not. We're sinful. We disobey. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We don't measure up to God's standards of absolute holiness. And so it is only through the pardon that comes from individually, personally choosing to receive Jesus' death as the payment for my sin, that any of us can be rescued from the consequences of that wrath. And so when we consider this reality, and what that means for for people all around us, I think the first emotion that we should experience is sadness. Is sorrow, is regret. And what I want to challenge us this morning is to let that emotion motivate us to do what we can, to do something about that. And I, I, I know you immediately start thinking these things, because I start thinking these things. You start thinking, well, I, I, I know, but I, I don't know enough, or... Or, or I'm not brave enough, or, or I, I'm not persuasive enough, or any of those kinds of things, right? We start thinking those things. And the truth is, we can't make the choice for people to put their faith and trust in Jesus to save them. But we can do something. And I think it starts with feeling something. And so let's start by determining that we're going to care. And then let's allow that to motivate us to do what we can. If you haven't done so already, reach in your worship folders and pull out the message notes. It's got the the passages that we're going to deal with today. And right at the top is the, the theme verse for this series that we're kicking off today on witnesses And it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, these words from Jesus. He says, but but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If Jesus were saying those words right here this morning to us, I think he'd say the exact same things. He would just maybe change the geographical references, right? But he says, you're to be my witnesses witnesses. In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, he, Jesus, 
said these words to them. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever doesn't believe will be condemned. Who who are these verses written to? Um, Missionaries? (laughs) Pastors? Uh, that, That 10% of the people with the gift of evangelism, maybe? I think if we're honest, we realize these verses are written to all of us, aren't they? That we're to be his witnesses. You know, in the, in the famous final episode of uh, Seinfeld, um, Jerry and the gang, are, are they go to this small little town, and while they're there, this guy gets mugged. Remember that issue, those of you, or that, that episode, if you can remember that far back? This guy gets mugged. He was played by John Panette, who was one of my favorite comedians, and he just died this past year. But, but, but this guy gets mugged, and uh, so Jerry and Elaine and Kramer and George, being typical New Yorkers, they just watch. <laughs> you know, they don't do anything. They just stand by. And In fact, they kind of make fun of the guy while he's getting mugged. And uh, what happens in the episode, if you've seen it, is they get arrested for uh, breaking the Good Samaritan law that had just been put into place because they didn't do anything. And, and it just, you know, escalates from there like every Seinfeld episode because it's just this show about nothing, right? You know, kind of thing. But the reason why it's so funny and so silly, we all realize, is that you can't legislate caring, can you? And yet, we all know that when you let yourself stop and care, that that motivates you then to do something, right? Now, here's where I think it, it, it might go off the rails for some of us, it is... Some of you maybe think these thoughts are, or you've been influenced by people who said these kinds of things, whatever. I think a lot of people think this. Well, you know, I'm not sure if I even really believe in hell. And and even so, uh, again, maybe you've thought this, maybe you think this, or or at least you've heard people say this. You know, I, I just don't believe a good God would send people to hell. And so let's take a few minutes and just kind of deal with that aspect right here. I I, I think the first problem is is with this aspect of if you'd say, well, I'm not sure I believe in hell. And and here's what the problem with that is, is if you don't believe in hell, here's the problem, is that Jesus clearly did believe in hell. In fact, if you read your New Testament, Jesus talked about hell (coughs) more than just about anything else. And he talked about hell as a real place that real people are going to go to. And so if you believe in Jesus, I I don't know how you get off not believing in hell. Because Jesus clearly believed that it was a real place and that real people were going to go there. But even beyond that, that that second statement, that that I'm just not believing that a a good God would send people to hell. The problem is with that statement because here's what the truth is. God doesn't send people to hell. He rescues people out of hell. God doesn't send people to hell. He rescues people out of hell. You see, the Bible teaches just what I said a minute ago, that God is holy and we are sinful. We don't measure up to the standard of his absolute holiness. Romans chapter 3, 
Verse 23 says this. It says, for all, all of us, you, me, the person right next to you, every person you're going to encounter today, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. God is holy. There is a gap there. All of us are sinners. And Paul later says in chapter 6, verse 22, the result of that sin, where he says at the first of that verse, for the wages then, the cost of, the payment of that sin is death. That we all will experience spiritual death, eternal separation from God. You see, God, it's not that God is mad at you, but his wrath is on you because he is holy and we are sinful. And so chapter 2, same book, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul says this. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. When God judges, and it says in verse 6 that God will repay each person according to what they have done. Everyone's sin must be paid for. And so you see, hell is what every one of us has coming. God doesn't send people to hell. It's what every one of us has coming because he's holy and we're sinful. It's your destiny and mine. And yet, God loves us. And he provided a way for us not to get what we deserved. I think there's a great picture of this and a great picture of the heart of God when it comes to this subject on us not getting what we deserve in the Old Testament. And in Exodus 32, I'm going to look at that if you want to turn your, in your Bibles there. <clears throat> but I, it, it's so important that we get this, that we understand that God doesn't send people to hell. He rescues people out of hell. God is holy, and yet he delights in sparing us from what we rightfully deserve. Exodus chapter 32. It's a story that many of you will be familiar with. If not, you'll be familiar with it here in a few minutes. Exodus chapter 32. It says, verse 1, that when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods, little g gods, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. God has miraculously saved them, rescued them out of their slavery, their bondage in Egypt. Moses leads them out, and then while they're camped there, Moses is up conversing with God. And while they do it, here they are, and they think, you know, we, where the heck's Moses? You know what? Let, let's make some gods. Let's make some idols to worship. And so, verse 2 Aaron answered them, and he said, Take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings, and they brought them to Aaron. And he took what was handed to him, and he made it into an idol, and cast in the shape of a calf, and fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
hey, not the true God. Worship this. The, this thing that hours ago was just your earrings, right? I mean, what stupid Israelites. We, we would never do that, right? I mean, we would never worship things other than the one true God, would we? We would never serve menial, earthly human things, would we? And we do it all the time. And it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day, the people rose early, and they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And then the Lord said to Moses, see, Moses is up talking to God, and God says to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. And they've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. And they've made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. And they've bowed down before it, and they've sacrificed to it, and they've said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So God goes on, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and that I will make you into a great nation. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm just going to start over with you. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. And Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against these people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians say that it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? So turn from your, first, from your fierce anger and relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self that I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will um, give your descendants all this land that I promised them, and I will make them into a great inheritance forever. Moses prays. He talks to God, and he says, God, don't do this. Yes, they deserve it, but don't do this. Think of your reputation. Think how other people will see this. Think of how people will misunderstand you on the basis of this. God, think of all of that stuff. And remember your promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. God, remember, please don't do this. And it says in the last part of the verse, or it says in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. He turned from his anger. He turned away. He didn't give them what they deserved. So maybe you think, well, then why, why doesn't God just let everyone off the hook? I mean, for all of eternity, why doesn't he? And that's because his holiness demands that sin be paid for. And yet he's a God who longs to relent, to not give us what we deserve. And that is why, friends, he made a way for us to not have to pay for our own sin. You see, God doesn't send people to hell. He rescues people out of hell. And in John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, you're familiar with this verse. It says, 
So God sent, so God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He goes on, for God did not send his son, Jesus did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so whoever believes in him isn't condemned, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, we're condemned already. But God made a way for us, for our neighbors, for the people we work with, for our friends, for family members that we love. God made a way for us to not have to pay for our own sin. Aren't you glad? That is really good news. And so here's what I want to do with the time I have left. I want to I just give us six things that any of us can do to up our game in this area, to be better witnesses, to enter into this process of evangelism with people. Six things, whether you have the gift of evangelism or not, these are things that any of us can do in this area. And you can write them down. I left you blanks to fill in if you care to do so. Are you ready? Here's the first one is we can just care. That's where it starts. It starts by caring. It starts by keeping that reality in front of us of the lost condition of the people around us. It starts by letting our hearts start getting soft towards these people who are facing a Christless eternity. We can start by just caring. Not only that, the second thing that any of us can do is we can pray. You know, Moses' prayers here in Exodus 32 made a difference, didn't they? Didn't they? And, you know, sometimes when you talk to people about prayer, you know, they get all philosophical on you. It's like, well, you know, God already knows what he's going to do, and so why pray if he already knows, and, you know, all this stuff, and people are elect, and people are, you know, sovereign, you know, and so, you know I'm not smart enough to figure all that out. I just know this. God says that my prayers make a difference. And so I pray. I pray for my friends, for their eyes to be opened. I pray against the roadblocks that stand in the way of them seeing how much God loves them, for those roadblocks to be removed. I pray for truth to be clear to them so that they can see clearly their condition and God's love for them. I pray for them to understand just how much Jesus deeply loves them. I pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says this. He says, the God of this age, little g, God, the, the devil, the evil one, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The evil one keeps them blinded from seeing that. It says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That if you're here this morning and you have entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it's because God cleared away the debris, cleared away the, the blinding on your eyes, and turned on the light so that you could see your condition and Jesus' love and what Jesus did to make a way to rescue you out of hell so that you could receive that. But if you haven't taken that step, or the people around you who haven't taken that step, it's because the evil one actively works to keep their eyes blinded. So what do you do about that? You pray. You pray that those roadblocks would be removed. You pray that their eyes would be opened. You pray that, that they would be convicted of their sin. You pray that they would see how much God deeply loves them. You can pray. Every single one of us can care. And every single one of us can pray. Heck, you can do those first two things without ever getting up out of your barca lounger right there, right? <laughs> we can care. We can pray. Number three, the thing that every one of us can do is we can build relationships with non-believers. Let me ask you, be honest with yourself here. Do you know the names of your neighbors? Statistics show that most people can't name their neighbors on this side, this side, the one straight across the street, the two right next to them, and the people who live behind them, that most people can't even name the names of those people. So if you can't, you're in the majority. But why is that? Do you pray for your neighbors? There's a good chance you're not praying for them if you don't even know their name. So you start by learning their name. You, you, you see, you have to make the progression from stranger to acquaintance, to friend. And one of the first steps is just learning their name. You just walk across the street and you, and you say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember, I'm trying to be a better neighbor. What, what's your name? I know you've told me before, but I'm stupid and I forget. And, you know, you just learn their names. You start praying for them. How, how about your coworkers? I mean, how do you look at your coworkers? Are those just people who are cogs in the machine of getting work done? Or do you see them as people who have a soul that's going to spend eternity forever somewhere? I mean, do you see them that way? What, you know, what about the people, you know, when you go to the athletic club, are you so tuned into your music and so turned into your routine that you don't even think about those other people around you? I mean, do you, do you just look for opportunities just, just to meet someone? Build a relationship. Are, are, are the parents of that, that your kids play or do extracurricular activities with? You know, are you just there watching little Billy on the field and how he's doing or how Susie's doing? Or, 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 or do you allow yourself to get to know these parents? Just, just build. I'm not talking about sharing faith. I'm not saying about talking about standing on the 50-yard line and preaching a sermon. I'm talking about just get to know. Just get to know people in hopes that you might be a link in the chain to them ultimately taking a step towards Jesus. You can build relationships with non-believers. And then, over time, I left out the word over time there. I should have put that here on number four. Over time, then, as you've built relationships, as you have conversations, over time, look for door-opening opportunities. 
Here's what I mean by a door-opening opportunity is you say something that will allow them to maybe open the door a little bit to talk a little deeper about something. See, if, if they don't want to, they just leave the door cracked or close it. Sometimes people just close the door. That's fine. But, but you look for opportunities to just say something that could be a door opener that might lead to a deeper conversation, a spiritual thing. Maybe you mentioned Jesus or you mentioned something about Jesus or you mentioned something that you read in your Bible that day or you mentioned something that you're hearing at church or learning at church. You just, you just mentioned some things like that that might lead to them saying, hey, well, what's that all about? Or, or they might say, well, you know, I don't go to church anymore. And you say, well, hey, how come? Why, why'd you quit? And, you know, again, that just leads to, to more things. You just look for opportunities to mention those things. Now, now, don't get stupid about it. You know, don't, hey, how about those Buckeyes? You know, if Jesus were here, he'd be a Buckeye fan, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, what do you think about LeBron? You know, I bet Jesus, if he, when he was here, I bet he could dunk, you know. I mean, you know, don't, use your brain. Don't force it. See, it's, it's not on you to make something happen, but, but do what you can. Just, just look for the, again, don't lead with this. Don't start with this. When you go across the street to, make, to meet that neighbor, don't start there. You just build a relationship. But over time, as you, as you build up some relational collateral, you just look for opportunities to maybe mention some things that would give them the chance to open the door a little bit more for a little bit deeper conversation. In fact, that leads right into number five, and that's this. You learn to listen more than you talk. Yeah, what? <laughs> Christians? Are you serious? No. You see, witnessing, listen to me, this is important. Witnessing isn't a sales pitch. It isn't some polished presentation. It's a conversation. And so as you're... As you get the opportunity over time, as you get the opportunity having built relationships, as you get the opportunity to talk maybe at a, at a little bit deeper level and they start to engage, you just listen a lot. And I tell you, here's what you listen to. You listen for what are those roadblocks that's standing in their way. You start just listening for the. You listen for the woundings in their life. I, I've had the opportunity to, to know a few atheists and, and you know, you you kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, but there's a lot of truth to it, and that is atheists, there's two things about atheists. They believe there is no God, and I hate him. you know? <laughs> now, we say that kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of stuff, but, but this has been the experience with a, a lot of people that I know that would claim to be atheists or agnostics. Or, you know, they claim there isn't any God, but, but if you listen somewhere, there's been some wounding back there. Sometimes where God just didn't come through the way they thought he should, or God didn't show up the way they did, or, or they were calling out to God and he was silent. Or si You listen, and a whole lot of the times you're going to hear some wounding there. And the truth of the matter is most people aren't atheists. They just, they just don't have a category for God you know, in their life. Or, or maybe when they think of God, they think of this religious activity or this feel-good thing, or they've kind of reduced christianity down to this thing that i'm not interested in that either they just don't know what an authentic real relationship with jesus is and so you just listen you 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 alert you 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 learn to just let this be a conversation rather than some sales pitch and you know what it's okay if they ask questions that you don't have an answer for i mean you need to learn pretty quick that just because you don't have an answer for it doesn't mean there isn't an answer. And you need to learn this phrase. In fact, let's learn it together. Here's the phrase. Can I get back to you on that? 
You know, they ask questions. It's a good question. It's, and maybe it's something you've just never thought before. You just learn to say, can I get back to you on that? Here, let's practice it together. You ready? Can I get back to you on that? And then you go talk to somebody who can maybe give you some insight on that. See, Christianity isn't like resting on toothpicks. Like, oh, no, if we ask, if we ask a hard question, it's just going to all fall down. And now, we don't, our faith is rock solid. We don't have to be afraid of that. And I think sometimes what keeps us paralyzed is we're so afraid somebody's going to ask us something that we don't know how to answer. Take that monkey off your back. It's okay. If they ask you something that you don't have an answer, you go, dang, that's a good question. Can I get back to you on that? And then you go talk to someone who can say, oh, yeah, that's a, I've heard that before. Here, or, you know, here. And, and, and you say, oh, yeah. That, and then you go and you reengage the conversation with them somewhere down the road. And the other thing I think you can do is you just tell your story. You know, how is it that you came to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You just tell your story and how they can take the same steps if they're interested to. In fact, I, I like to just remember it as ABC. Here's what's involved in becoming a Christian. Number one, you need to, A, admit you're a sinner. I mean, there's the problem. I, I'm a sinner. God's holy. That's the deal. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. God's holy. That's where the issue is. Admit you're a sinner. And so then, B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. See, here's the problem, but here's the solution. Jesus died. I believe that Jesus died. And then you have to believe something, and then you have to receive something. The, the receive something is you just confess Jesus is Lord. It's not just enough to believe something in your head. You have to receive Jesus' death as the payment for your sin. So you admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Uh, to pay for your sins, and you confess him as your Savior and Lord. So you, you, you just tell your story of how you took those steps. And again, this isn't necessarily one, this is most likely multiple conversations, but over time you just tell your story and how you took those steps and how they can too if they're interested. Here, there's another phrase I want to teach you. It's this. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Let's learn that together. Uh, say it with me. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. You see, just it's, it's just ABC. Say it with me one more time. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. And so it, it, as you engage people in conversations, you just talk, you listen, you you see where this goes. You depend upon the Holy Spirit to give you the words in time. It's, there's no monkey on your back. It's God being at work in them and just using you in the process. See? And then one more thing, number six, something that all of us can do is this, is you just invite them to something. You know, in the midst of conversation, when they allow you to, the opportunity, you say, hey, well, well, just come check this out. Come to church with me or, or come do this thing that our small group's doing or, or come find out more or, you know, hey, they're... they're you need to come meet some other people who believe this crazy stuff that I do, you know, about Jesus. Um, and I got to, you know, again, I think this is why small groups are such a great aspect of this for evangelism. It's just, I mean, I can just tell you a bunch of stories of people who weren't even looking for God, but they got around people who knew and loved Jesus. And over time, they just loved them into being open to Jesus. And so you just invite them to something. Now, let me tell you one more thing, and this is deep. And that is step number three in this list comes before step number six. 
Isn't that deep right there? Listen, build a relationship with them before you start inviting them to things. You know, if, if, if the first thing you do is march across the street and say, hey, would you like to come to this women's summer study that I'm having? They're going to say what? <laughs> no. Who the heck are you? <laughs> but that's where we start too often, see? See, you need to build a relationship. I heard Rod say many times last weekend, invite them to your home before you invite them to church. You invite them to come over for dinner or to come over for a cup of coffee or to go out to lunch with you or something. Invite, you know, engage the relationship and build some relational collateral with them. And then as this gives opportunity, invite them to something. But here's what I want to challenge all of us this morning. Is let's stop being content to do nothing while people all around us are going to hell. And I think it starts, it starts with just caring about them. And then letting that care well up inside of us to the level that we start to do what we can to maybe be an influence in changing them. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, before anything else, I, I just want to thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for turning on the lights in my mind in a way that pushed away the barriers and let me see how much you love me. How that my, I had a problem and that you had the solution. That you died to make that way, to rescue me from what I rightfully deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And Lord, my prayer for all of us this morning, those of us who know you, is that we would just up our game in this area. That we would start to care and we would let that care, that burden, just that our hearts would grow softer towards this eternal reality of people around us in such a way that just causes us to hear from you of, of steps to take and things to do and individuals to, to meet. And Lord, just over these coming weeks as we deal with this, God, speak to us, work in us so that the world around us, Lord, has the opportunity to hear what an amazing thing you did in dying on the cross for us. And I pray this in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.